Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Good evening, everybody. My name is Alex, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Alex. And I've been sober since uh, July 4th of 2001, and uh I wanted to thank Danny for the honor and the privilege of being asked to come here, and um, and you guys were being so gracious and acting like it was a big deal. And then, of course, Mike came up and told the truth, and I really <laughs> am thankful to him for that. Because you know, it really wasn't a big deal at all. It seemed like the drive went really fast, and it was raining. And um, my daughter, Jonna, my ace in the hole, came with me because um, we are our whole group, or not our whole group, but a few guys in our group that would be here with me tonight. We're going to. De- uh, Nebraska tomorrow. It's like a nine-hour drive, and so everyone needed to a sponsorship meeting going on, and they needed to be to that, and we're all leaving early, so they needed to get to bed early or whatever. So Jonna came down here with me, and um, she just got her her permit, her driver's permit, and I really wanted to let her do some driving, but it was just like we were hydroplaning out. I mean, it's crazy. It's raining, but um, I was just um, listening to what you guys were saying and about the the fatality of this disease and how you know really hardcore stuff. And I was just, you know, we were talking, me and Larry, before the meeting and about, I used to go to a lot of groups that didn't take it quite so seriously, you know, and, and, and it would sound a little hardcore what you guys were saying. And um, I know for me, um, I drank really hardcore, you know, I got loaded and it was really a hardcore deal for me. I wasn't, um, didn't have too many pina coladas in the park. I didn't have many <laughs> drinks with umbrellas in them, you know, I didn't. I didn't go to clubs and, and, and dance and have fun. I just basically got my liquor and, and went to a hole and, and drank. And I was thinking about what Chris was saying um, about the amends process and about how many people we affect. And, I, um, you know, my best friend who I came in with, and um, he had no time and I had no time, and, and um, I stayed sober, and he keeps going out. You know, and uh, and this time I, we all thought that he really had something going on. And even my grand sponsor, Dave, had made a remark to him to the effect of, you're becoming transparent, Kenny. This thing's really working in your life. At the getaway or at the uh, anniversary at our group a few weeks ago, I commented to his mom, you know, I think he's really changing. I think he's really getting sober this time. And it was, you know, everyone was really happy for him. And um, and uh, he went to this to the same conference that a lot of you went to, and he read How It Works on Saturday night and was with his great-grand sponsor and had a great weekend, and he came home and got drunk, you know. And and we're really close with this guy, and he comes and spends you know, whole weekends at our house, and his kids are friends with my kids, and we really love this guy. And, um, and when we found out he was drunk, it was just amazing, you know. And his sponsor called me, and my sponsor called me, and they needed his... Mom's number, so I called his father at work, and my wife's calling me, asking me what happened, and uh, and I heard my my other younger daughter talking to her friend, and she said, "How's Kenny?" And she said, "Well, he's drunk again," and and John is asking me, "Well, what happened?" and and just on and on, and everyone in our group is so concerned, and I started thinking about just how many people we affect out there, you know, it's just the mantra, you know, the that everyone cries, I'm not hurting anyone but myself. It just can't be any more untrue because, you know. It's the people that we claim to love and the harm that we do is, is just, 
I'm just so glad to be in a group that takes this deal seriously because I did um, spend many years in AA, and maybe I just wasn't ready, I don't know, but I never heard anything like I heard here about the fatality of this disease. You know, if, if I wanted something that somebody had, it was what kind of car they drove and how much money they made and what kind of connections they could pass on to me because I needed money. I needed my life back because I was, you know, out on the street again. And um, it was pretty bad out there. I was... Uh, actually born here in the great state of Texas. I was born in, in San Antonio in 1968 and um, lived there for probably about a month of my life and moved to Southern California. And I um, lived there for 25 years. And um, you heard my name earlier. My name is Self. I come from a long line of very selfish people. <laughs> um, my, my mom's a little bitty Mexican lady, like five feet tall, and my dad's this giant white guy, like John Wayne, like 6'4", and, and he uh, was 65 when he had me. He was born in 1904, um, somewhere in Oklahoma, I think, and, um, and it was kind of a strange deal growing up like that. You know, my dad was a senior citizen by the time I was born, and I have, you know, <laughs> I have something like, I don't really know, maybe eight brothers and sisters, so I was born an uncle to guys who were already in their 30s and 40s. My, um, my dad's first child died of appendicitis in the 20s, and, um, you know, now you have an appendectomy and that's it, but there was no cure for what she had then. I mean, that's how old she was. She would probably be 80 years old or something if she was still around. And growing up that way was kind of a trip, um, you know, going to Little League, and, and, and my dad was already in his 70s, and, you know, people talk about how they never felt quite right, you know, their whole lives they never felt quite right, and I don't, I, maybe my mind is just foggy, but I don't really remember that, you know, I remember having a really happy childhood, uh, it was just me and my brother, we were the last two born, and, um, and, you know, we never lacked for anything, we weren't rich by any means. We just lived in a regular neighborhood in Santa Ana, California. I grew up 20 minutes from Disneyland. And, um, and life was great, you know. The weather was great. And, uh, and I played sports and went to school and did pretty good in school. My teachers liked me. And, and uh, my parents loved me. Whenever we needed a new washing machine or if something broke, we'd just get another one. Plenty of food on the table, obviously, by looking at me. And um, I never felt unloved. You know, my dad um, was very old school, as you can imagine. He'd be uh, 100 next year if he were still around. So, you know, we got disciplined the old-fashioned way. There wasn't any grounding going on at my house. You know, if you screwed up, you, you got beat down. I mean, that's just the way they did it. And, um, and I never felt abused. My dad never hit me because he was in a bad mood. You know, he never drank. He smoked, but he never drank. My mom never drank. They were just really good people, and they were Christian people, and they took us to church, and I can remember always being at church, never wanted to be there, but I, I seemed like I lived there, and I remember um, being there even when I was sick, and hurling right in the middle of the sermon, you know, and, and, um, and I just remember thinking, you know, when I, when I have a choice, I'm not coming back here, and uh, it seemed, uh, it was about, about 12 years old, I was about 12 years old, the neighborhood that I lived in was just a regular middle-class neighborhood, and through the years, it started um, going downhill, and I lived across the street from a family, the Garcia family, and uh, I ended up going over there, and that became like my second home, and it was just, it was kind of a, a funny deal. They were um, really, really large Mexican women, and they loved to party. I mean, they drank, and they got loaded, and it was just a daily thing. It's just what they did, and um, I stayed away from it because 
I have uh, one of my older brothers who's probably now 50-something. He is um, he is an alcoholic. You know, we don't like to pronounce anyone an alcoholic, but I'll, I'm pronouncing him an alcoholic. He's been <laughs> he's been in and out of prison his whole life. You know, he the last time I saw him, we were dropping him off by the welfare office, and he was crying because he didn't have any cardboard and he didn't even have a marker to get a sign because he's one of those guys. We'll work for food, which is kind of funny. It's like, well, go do it. I do. You know, why don't you just go do it? But he, um, he, he, was, he was always drunk. And the first time I ever remember smelling alcohol, it was that sweet smell. And he would just drink gallons of wine, cheap wine. And he'd leave them in the garage. And we used to pour stuff in them and mess around them and make little bombs when we were kids. And, <laughs> and, and I, every time I was around Mike, I smelled that sweet smell of wine, that sweet smell of alcohol. And he always was smiling and just kind of like eyes were low. And he had a bad heroin habit, too. It was probably... Uh, didn't help his low eyes much, but um, I remember him and my dad just having horrific fights um, when I was really young, and I remember maybe being five or six, and my dad giving each of my brothers, um, we had, you know, heavy brass lamps and on the end tables in the corners, and he took off the shades and um, took the cords out of the wall and gave us the lamps and said, if he comes in here, you know, I want you guys to hit him over the head as hard as you can, and, um, you know, TV's missing, and, and you know, He'd come to stay with us, and then the TV would be gone, and he'd be gone. And his, he'd show up with a girl who'd be perfectly fine, and the next morning she'd wake up, and her eye would be swollen shut. You know, And I didn't know what was going on as a little kid. I just, I mean, it didn't seem normal, but it didn't seem abnormal. I had nothing to compare it to. You know, It's just what, what my childhood was like. And I mean, he wasn't around much, but um, I had swore to my dad one time sitting in the lawn. I remember sitting Indian style with my dad in the lawn. And he made me uh, promise to him. He asked me if I'd promise him that I would never drink, I'd never take drugs, and never sniff glue is what he said. Promise to me he'll never sniff glue. I said, I promise, Dad. And, you know, looking at my brother and the, the tragedy that was my brother, it was easy to say, heck, no, I'm never going to do that stuff. I mean, look at that guy. I don't want to be like him. But hanging over at the Garcia's house was a little different. Um, there was a guy, a friend of mine, Lino, who um, I started going to school with every day. We went to the same school, and, um, and he would light one up. I mean, I know this is Alcoholics Anonymous, but my, my, my experience, this is my experience, my story is he would light one up before school every day, 12 years old, and this guy's smoking a doobie on the way to school every day. And I, um, you know, I refrained from it for about two weeks, and I'd see him before he'd light one up and after he'd light one up, before school and after school, every day for two weeks until finally one day we were walking down the bike trail, and I said, man, give me that. You know, not that I wanted to be like my brother Mike, not that I wanted to beat up women and, and you know, and, and, and hold signs up on the off-ramps on a freeway. I just, I just, I don't know why I did it. I just couldn't really take watching him do it anymore. So I took a drag, and, um, and it wasn't long after that that I took my first drink. And I don't remember, you know, when I took my first drink that, uh, you know, it shot down through my fingertips and through my toes or any of that, and all of a sudden I felt okay. But I know that I really liked it. You know, I, I don't remember everything being terrible before I took that first drink, but I know after I took it, it just made everything great, you know. I used to like to do things like go to the movies, and going to movies was fine without it, but after I started drinking, it's like, man, why not? Why not sneak in a, a fifth of Southern Comfort to go see uh, Star Wars or whatever it was we were going to see, you know, whatever movie was out that week. And it just kind of enhanced my life. And... um. And I started uh, 
like that pretty early. You know, I would say 12 years old, by the time I was 13 and 14, I was pretty much, you know, I was drunk. <laughs> That's what I did. And I can remember early on, in, um, you know, when, when I was in high school, probably 13, 14 years old, and uh, having a goal. And my goal in life was to get $8.17, no matter how we had to do it. That was our goal in life. So we'd save our lunch money. I'd steal from my mom's purse, and he'd steal from his mom's purse, or we'd ask whoever we could to get $8.17. And that was for a, a nickel a bud, and for uh, three, that was $5. And $3.17 was for a 12-pack of Schaefer beer. And that's what, my, that's what I did. Those were my hopes and dreams and aspirations at, uh, at 14 years old. <laughs> and that's all we did every day. And after a while, I quit going to school and, and just pretty much made it a full-time profession. And, and the good grades I used to get and the teachers that used to like me, that all just stopped. And I became pretty much um, full-blown. And I would just go hang out at the Garcias because, like I said, that's just what they did. I mean, that's what their occupation was. They just got loaded. They got their welfare checks, and, and they bought lots of beer. And in California, the price of aluminum is a lot higher than it is anywhere else I've ever been. So the cans we would drink, we'd stomp the next day and go get more. And that's all we did was just get loaded day in and day out. And I remember being 14, 15 years old, and um, I was hooked on the soaps. I watched General Hospital and all my children <laughs> and One Life to Live. Instead of going to school like normal kids did, I was... Sitting at home, getting loaded, watching soap operas, and um, and it was a, it was a trippy deal growing up in that environment. You know, it was like um, our own little ghetto there, and uh, and just to give you an example of what it was like, I remember one Christmas, um, I wanted some, some chocolate chip cookies, and um, so I went to the store, walked to the store, and got me a, I got me a, a roll of those cookies, and they didn't have chocolate chip cookies, so I got sugar cookies. And um, I told, you know, Rachel to, to put them in the oven and cook them up for me because it's Christmas time. Let's celebrate with some cookies. You know, of course, we're all drunk. And uh, she put them in the oven and, 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 and excuse me, they came out. <laughs> they came out of the oven and, uh, and I took a bite of this cookie and I, I tasted something crunchy. And I looked at it, and it had little black marks in it, and I said, wait a minute, these are sugar cookies. They're not chocolate chip cookies. And what had happened is the oven had scared all the roaches from the bottom where the heat was coming up to the top of the oven, and they had came down into the cookies. And, you know, I ate one of those cookies. And I remember um, Rachel telling uh, one of her kids was whining about it, and she says, what are you whining about? Just take them out. They're still good, you know. And I just, I'll never forget that special Christmas I had back home. And that's just the, that's just the, just the kind of ghetto life I lived, you know. And I, and I just see, and I loved it, you know. I loved getting loaded. It wasn't, I didn't know that I was supposed to do anything any different. Well, at that point until, um, you know, then the consequences kind of start happening. I remember it seemed like when I was 18 years old in one day, I was locked up. I'd ran a stop sign because I got a ticket. I didn't pay, and I ended up in jail. And it wasn't one of the, the kinder, gentler jails that they have now with the glass. It was the old ones with the bars. And I remember sitting in there with the old men and, and uh, the biker guys with the tattoos and just being petrified and in there shaking, you know, and, um, and just thinking, you know, I'm never going to do this again. Whatever it takes, I am never going to be in this position again. I'm going to get my stuff together. I'm going to start going to school, and I'm going to quit drinking because, you know, it's starting to cause problems in my life. And, um, and you know, I talked about never um, 
there was never anything wrong in my life that I remembered up to that point, but I had already gotten past that point. Um, and uh, now when I wasn't loaded, I did feel bad. When I wasn't drinking, I did feel different. I felt, you know, Clancy talks about that invisible spring in my gut. And when I wasn't drinking and when I wasn't getting loaded, it just tightened and tightened. And I was already at that point in my life where I, I could not function without it. You know, I had, I had to have alcohol in my system just, to, you know, in order to function. And it, and it got a lot worse. And, um, and I'm a furniture mover. I move furniture. I drive a truck. That's just, I've always moved furniture since I actually dropped out of school to move furniture. And, um, and, and, and that's what I was doing at the time. I started moving furniture. And, and moving furniture is a great job because you get to go into people's houses and you get to pack their stuff up. And it's a great deal if you're an alcoholic and you don't have any money. Because anything that they have that, that you think, you know, you need or you, you want, you can just go ahead and take. You know, pack a box for them and pack a box for you and you just take that home. <laughs> and it, it really allowed me to function, you know, because I used to spend my money as quick as I got it. But this enabled me to stay loaded all the time. You know, we'd make up our own rules like, oh, man, it's against federal law to pack alcohol. We've got to take that with us, you know. And, and I, I, I lived in my, um, at this point in my life, um, I was living in my mom's garage. And um, I used to sit in the garage and I lived there with a dog, you know, while all my friends and people that I knew were, their lives were flourishing and they were going to college and I guess they were going into computers or pre-med or whatever it is that people do, you know. And I was living in a garage with a dog at my mom's house and I was drinking um, stolen vodka out of a plastic bottle. And, um, and taking everything else I could get my hands on. And at this time, I was absolutely full-blown. And I can remember sitting in there in my garage, just sauced out, just hammered, drinking out of this plastic stolen bottle of vodka and just thinking, you know, this is my favorite thing to do in the whole wide world. <laughs> I mean, and I'm serious about it. There was nothing else I would rather be doing in the world than sucking on a bottle of vodka after doing all those other things, you know. And like I said, I know this is Alcoholics Anonymous, but um, drugs are a big part of my story. And what I know about drugs today is that, uh, is that um, you know, doing a, and I, I could do a boatload of cocaine, and, um, and it would make me feel nervous and twitchy, and I would be always scared and looking for somebody. I don't know who I was looking for, but I was looking for somebody, and they were always on their way to get me. And I, I just never felt right, and I was paranoid, and, um, and I knew what it took to make me feel right. And if I took a big slug off a bottle of whatever it was, you know, my shoulders would go back and my chest would go out, and I said, yeah. You know, I'm living in my mom's garage with a dog, but if I take a big slug of alcohol, I say, this ain't so bad. You know, this is no big deal, and I'm going to get my stuff together tomorrow anyway. You know, sign up for that computer class and then get to the community college, and it's, it'll all be better, you know. Maybe I'll even start working out, you know. I'll get buffed, and uh, maybe I could, I could find a woman, and then she could take care of me. But, but we'll do that tomorrow because I got like a half a quart left, so let's just get good and drunk now. And it made things just okay. It made it okay to be who, I, who and what I was, which, you know, it's sad when um, you're living at home with your mom and you're 18 years old, and she has to hire a lawn service to mow her lawn. I mean, that's who I was. And um, just lazy, and my poor mom, you know, and I would see relatives come over, and as soon as they'd shut the door, I'd jump out over the fence so I wouldn't have to talk to them because they'd ask you those annoying questions like, what are you doing with your life, and how's it going? 
And how are you going to stay sober through questions like that, you know? Living in a garage with a dog. Oh, things are wonderful, you know? I think uh, it's it just something that I had to drink over because I hated who I was, you know? And I hated the excuses my mom had to make. Oh, he's helping me. You know, he's, he helps me out. That's why he, he's still living here. He's not moving on with his life because he's helping me out. And it, it was just embarrassing being who I was. And, and, um, and, you know, I stole from my mom. And I, she'd come home from work and her TV would be gone. And the VCR would be gone. And, and I would rifle through her room till I found her cash. And I'd steal her cash. And an older brother who lived there who drank, but he didn't drink like me. And, and he knew not to leave his wallet around. And, and after a while, they just started hiding their... Uh, their purses and their wallets all together because, um, you know, nothing was safe around me. And um, like I said, I'm a furniture mover, and um, I started going on the road just to, to get away. And um, I was going through Denver one time, and, and I went to a bar there at a truck stop, and um, I met a lady. And I hadn't met a girl in a long time. It was a pretty exciting deal. I can't believe anyone would have had me at that point. And she asked me those questions, you know, like, well, so, uh, do you drink much? No, I don't drink much. Well, do you do any drugs? Oh, no, no, I never do any drugs. And um, and we hooked up, and it was a great deal for me. And that was another, like, little spark of motivation that I had. You know, this girl actually likes me. I hadn't been with a girl in years because I always put girls below getting loaded, and they didn't seem to like that too much. And... um. And this girl, um, poor thing, she's an Al-Anon today, and um, she she is like a loser magnet, this poor girl, and um, she actually liked me, and when I got back to California, I, I went to jail for, for buying some illegal substances off a police officer, and um, that was it, that was the final straw, and she and I was writing her at this time and told her you know, what my circumstances were, and this was it, this was the catalyst that was going to put me you know, into sobriety, lifelong sobriety, and uh, and but I told her I needed some help, so she sent me a plane ticket to go to Denver. You know, God bless her. She sent me a plane ticket to go to Denver, where we could go and live a normal life, and um, you know, take the kids for stroller rides, and uh, and um, you know, go to museums or whatever it is that, that non-alcoholic people do. I had no idea at this point because I lived in a garage with a dog. And she was she was a normal person, and she had um, two daughters who were like three and four years old. And it was just kind of like um, my friend Scott talks about it, our home group. You know, I just took an, a couple of hostages. I took a, a family hostage. And, um, and it just, I got away from uh, Southern California where all my problems were if I could just get out of this ghetto neighborhood, you know, and go someplace nice where they don't have people like I live with, and I could probably be okay. So I moved to Denver, Colorado, you know, and tried to go to the mountains and the streams and all that and figured I could get some fresh air and it'd make me feel okay, listen to the birds sing or whatever it is I was going to do, maybe take up skiing. And, and I found out that they have everything in Denver, Colorado that they have in Santa Ana, California, and it took me all of like three days to find it. And um, I just started drinking immediately when I got there and um, stole her keys very quickly after that and went out to find everything that I needed to find. And it was all there and then some. And that's when things um, really started to get bad for me And when I moved to Denver. And um, I would pretty much drink every day and get high however I could every day. And, um, you know, I'd work, and, and when we had needed money for the rent or the kids were in poopy diapers or 
there was no, uh, well, they weren't in diapers at this point. There was no food in the cupboards or the fridge, and we were late on the rent, and I had a paycheck coming. And, um, you know, all the supposed responsibilities that I had that I pretty much signed up for by moving in with this family became um, sacrifices for me. And they, none of them appreciated it, of course, you know, and they didn't understand the tension and the stress that I was having by having to live with the lady and her two kids. And, I mean, it was just, I couldn't take it, you know. And, and so on Friday when I got paid, I would go have a drink to relieve the pressure, you know, because living with two little rug rats and, and it just, you know, whatever it was I, I used to say, I'd go have a drink to relieve the pressure. And, um, you know, I'd usually show up either one, two, three days later with not a penny in my pocket, you know. The rent was due, like I said, maybe coming home to an eviction notice on the door, which is, um, you know, how do you stay sober through something like that? When you have the rent money and you spend every penny and you come home to an eviction notice on the door. And there's no way that I could handle that type of deal. I had to drink. And so I did. And it didn't take very long for her to um, to get sick of me. And so then she just started kicking me out. You know, I'd come home with my sorry stories and she'd just put me out. And, you know, she'd kick me to the curb. And it got to be a, a pretty regular deal for me. And at this point I started staying at... Um, homeless shelters, and, um, and I, I could stay sober for a while, and I started going to actually to Alcoholics Anonymous at this point, and I remember the first time going to a meeting and walking up those steps and, and going through the door and seeing the smoky room and all the old guys with their cigars and the coffee and seeing the steps in the wall, and they had promises on the wall, and this old-timer, he came and gave me a, there was a medallion, a 24-hour medallion, and he said, put this in your mouth. He goes, when it dissolves, you can take a drink. And I thought, wow, that is so cool, you know. And, um, and I thought that I had arrived, that I thought that was it. You know, like if they had some kind of magic dust or something that they were going to sprinkle on me and I would just be struck sober. I didn't want to work for it. I didn't want to take any steps to get it. I didn't want to take any actions to do anything. I just wanted to be rendered sober. You know, however, whatever it is that they had, which all I saw was their sobriety, I wanted it to quit living the way I was living. I wanted to quit, you know, deep inside, I wanted to quit hurting the people I was hurting. I hated it. And um, I hated who I was. And I can remember her, you know, spitting in my face and saying, I hate you. And I would say, you know, if, if you hate me, um, no one hates me more than myself. You have to stand in line behind me because no one hates me more than me. And I can remember going to Alcoholics Anonymous and just, and just, you know, sitting in there and crying. I loved it because they had tables that I could cry on. And I wouldn't listen to what anyone had to say. And it was great because you could just get up. And whenever someone was sharing that was a little bit too boring, I'd have to go to the bathroom. Whether I had to go to the bathroom or not, I'd get up, go get a drink or go to the bathroom or whatever it was. And, um, and I, you know, needless to say, I couldn't stay sober in that environment. I, I didn't understand how they stayed sober. They just basically said, you need to work your program and you can have what we have. And I didn't know how to work the program. So I just did what I had to do. I got drunk. And, um, and at, at one point, um, I found myself living in a crack house. And it had been months since I had seen um, this uh, lady and her kids. And at, at this time, um, we had had one of our own. And I remember when, when my son Christian was born, I remember swearing on, on this little baby as he came out. You know, I'll never get loaded again. I'll never drink again. And, and at that point, I had pretty much ran out of things to swear on, whether it was my father's grave or my son's birth. Or, you know, they held about as much weight as a New Year's resolution, which I made every year, too, and never kept. And, um, and things got really bad. I remember one time walking to the laundromat 
with all my clothes and I had had a car when I left them and, and I had I gave my car to the dope man for a, a few rocks and some beer money and I you know, had lost that too and I remember walking to the laundromat and they came by and their dad, her father was in a, a bad horse accident and he had broken his leg and they were on their way to see him and there I was walking down the street with my bag and um, you know they pulled over and see me, they hadn't seen me in months and they'd seen the condition I was in and, and it just you know, to see him and, and my little boy who grown up, you know, I, he came running out of the car and they, I thought they were all just going to start yelling at me and screaming at me and you're a bum, you know, you are, I thought they were going to tell me basically what I was and they're glad I was gone. They never wanted to see me again and they didn't. And they started crying and, um, you know, where have you been and what are you doing? And, and I just, the, you know, the, the shame and the guilt and remorse of, of situations like that are just unbearable for someone who has no solution, you know. And um, I don't even know how to describe the horror and the remorse and the hopelessness of, of, um, of basically, you know, living in a place like that. And um, there was one point where my mom wrote me off, um, the lady that I was living with wrote me off, um, I was living in a state where there was no one left and there was no, Clancy talks about, there was no friendly direction. There was no place that I could go where anyone would be happy to see me, you know, and, um, and, and it, what a glorious place it was for me to be. I had no idea at that point that it was, but, but I had ran out of options. And, um, and um, my, my girl that I was with had moved out of the state to get away from me. It had gotten so bad. And I remember um, John writing me a letter saying uh, to the effect of, you know, you would have been a good dad. And we were supposed to get married, and I had went and had a drink to uh, one last hurrah and, and ended up doing the same thing again. She couldn't take it, and, and they were leaving the state. And uh, and it just, you know, then it, it just got worse and worse. And um, and I ended up following her to Oklahoma. And, um, and that's where I found the Going to Any Lengths group. Um, I was trying to go to meetings where I lived in Broken Arrow, and um, and I went to this one meeting, which was the same meeting that I had been to for the six years I had been going to AA, where everyone just talked about traffic on the freeway. And I had a fight with my brother this morning, and you know, thank God I'm here. I really needed a meeting today. You know, no structure, no commitment, no discipline. And um, I was going to this meeting, and I was getting really close. I mean, it, the spring was tightening in my gut. And I knew that, it, you know, if I were to get drunk here, that that would really ruin everything. And um, I, like I said I'm before, I'm a mover. And I uh, was looking for work, and I opened the phone book, and I picked a moving company. And, um, and this guy said, yeah, there's a lady moving uh, tomorrow. Just show up at this house, and you can move her. So I show up at this house, and we're moving her. And, um, and I saw she was carrying around her keys, and she had a medallion on there, a three-year chip. And I said, you know, are you a friend of Bill's? And she said, yes, I am a friend of Bill's. Um, I go to the Going Any Lengths group. And I said, well, I'm having a really hard time staying sober. And she said, well, I'm going to give you this address to this group. She goes, if you're serious about staying sober. If you're not serious about staying sober, i got plenty of other groups you can go to. But if you're through screwing around, I'll give you this number. But if you're not through, I won't give it to you, you know. And she just kept toying with me. I'm like, give me the number. And... Um, and she gave me the number, and um, and I didn't want to go because I wasn't quite sure that I wanted to. Um, I was quite sure I wanted to quit drinking, but actually I was scared of what I was going to find there. I didn't know what was going to go on there, you know. I mean, I had never really been to anything like that, and um, I just kind of liked my meetings where I could lay my head down on the table and whine and cry and 
or fall asleep, sometimes I wake up with drool on the table after the Lord's Prayer. And, <laughs> and, um, and like I said, at this time that the spring was really tightening in my gut, and I showed up at that same meeting I was going to, and um, it was an 8 o'clock meeting, and it was about 4 minutes to 8, which is about when I show up to a meeting. That's early, actually, about 3 minutes early. And, um, you know, it was 3 minutes till, 2 minutes till, 1 minute, 8 o'clock. 8.02, 8.05, no one there. And I looked at my schedule, and I'm thinking, you know, what's going on? There's supposed to be a meeting here. And there was that address to that um, group that she talked about, the Corning Links group. And I went and showed up about 40 minutes late. And um, I don't remember much about what was being said. I just remember there was no tables there. And they sat in a square, and they, they talked really seriously. And no one was getting up, and um, I showed up in shorts and socks and thongs and a hat. And I looked around, and everyone's, you know, dressed like a man with an answer. I mean, that's, I didn't know that's what they were dressed like, but they surely weren't dressed like me. And, um, and this place was different. And I remember after um, they read the Lord's Prayer, about six guys just, like, rushed me after the meeting. And I remember Scott, and I remember Doc, and... Dave was there and Byron, and I remember Scott sat down to me and said, hey, I'll be your temporary sponsor. So I had a temporary sponsor, and, um, and it wasn't long after that to where they started, you know, they had me going to, uh, you know, they called them prayer meetings, or we'd go play poker all night. And I, and I just, I didn't want to go. I think that was the, the second night I was there. I didn't want to go, but I just, you know, I had to go home and think, I think, was what I really wanted to do. But instead, I just took a, took a chance, and I went, I went with them to this uh, prayer meeting. And I ended up coming home at like um, 2 in the morning. And, and, you know, it's just a sad deal, but the look on my, um, then my wife's face was just, uh, you know, where have you been? That sick, worried look. You know, you did it again. You know, here we are, moved to a new state, and you did it again. And I told her, no, I didn't do it again, actually. I, I found this group, and, um, and it, it seems like a really good deal. And um, and I just started, you know, doing what, what they do there. And um, I started to learn about what commitment was. And um, I learned you had to have a pretty thick skin to stay there. You know, they didn't put up with anything there. They didn't put up with any of my wine. They didn't want to hear what I had to say. You know, they told me to sit down and shut up, and they meant it. You know, if you, if you say anything out of line there, um, you know, that you got put in your place real quick. And um, there were plenty of times where I wanted to leave, where there were plenty of times where my feelings were hurt. But I had no place else to go. And what was great about this group is that they gave you actions to do. They gave you actions to take, you know. And I was just hopeless enough to do them. You know, they would say, we have a, uh, a sponsorship meeting tonight. You know, you need to be there at 8 o'clock. And so I would go just because, you know, I, I really didn't have anything else better to do. And um, I wanted to take a chance to, to finally stay sober. And, um, you know, the next night we'd have another meeting, and, and then the next night we'd have another meeting. And then on Sunday we might have a, a birthday party or, or, you know, some wedding going on. You know, this is this really active group. It was like it was a way of life. It wasn't something. All the other groups I had been to were just a place you went to for an hour. And you showed up there and you, you shared, you know, on whatever it was that was bothering you that day, and then you went home. And this place was just really different, and, and I got to become friends with a lot of the people there. Like I mentioned my friend Kenny, I, I know that today that the people that you come in with are the people that you really um, you bond with. And, 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 and I got sober with a lot of guys there, and, um, 
And you know, I thought I would never ever, because they have what, you know, it's the pecking order. And I thought I'd be at the end of that pecking order my whole life, you know. And, and it's a trip. I look around today, I think um, we're going to Nebraska tomorrow, and I think I'm maybe even second row or maybe even third row. And it just amazes me. You know, and I went to like to my first big book study, and I was like 69th on the list, you know, way down there. And they made me put Alex Selfish on my name tag, and I had to walk around with that the whole weekend. And... And just little things like that to deflate my ego, you know, and um, because I took myself way too seriously and no one really cared, you know, what I, like I said, what I thought. They just, um, they knew what I was and they had the, the courage to tell me the truth about what I was and who I was and, um, and all the people that I hurt, you know, and, and that I was the biggest thief in the world because I, uh, I stole away people's rights to be happy. And, um, and I started doing those steps. I got myself a sponsor. It was really funny because Scott was my first sponsor, my temporary sponsor, and I didn't really like him because he didn't seem very understanding to my problems. <laughs> so I asked another guy, Mickey, to be my sponsor because he had kids. And I figured, well, Scott don't have no kids. He don't know nothing about me and my problems. So I'm going to ask Mickey to be my sponsor. And that wasn't working out. It, 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 I had him for about two months, and, and I found I didn't like Mickey too much because he didn't live with his kids. He was kind of a weekend dad. And I didn't like that, so I got another sponsor. Uh, I asked uh, Tim to be my sponsor. And, um, and right around that time, uh, there was a, we always have a meeting after the meeting at my home group where guys sit around for you know, about a half hour after the meeting. And I remember sitting down that, um, that night, and I think the topic of discussion was weak-willed guys who sponsor hop. And that was uh, kind of a, a a wake-up call for me to quit doing it, you know. Um, you know, I guess it wasn't about me, but it was about me. It's a strange thing that goes on in our meetings when my grand sponsor talks. And, and, and whatever it is, whatever it is you're doing, if you're keeping secrets or you're leading a double life or you're sponsor hopping or you're gossiping, you know, and he's not talking to you and he's not talking about you, but he has that strange way of making you feel like it's you and him in a room and he's just glaring at you, you know, and he's screaming at you. And uh, whether it's about you or not, because, you know, you know, being in a, in a meeting of alcoholics and I'm lying about your sobriety date, you know, you might fool everybody there, but you know, you know what it is that your real sobriety date is, and you know what it is you're doing, you know about that secret life you have and those secrets you're keeping, you know, and, um, and he's talking about you, and it's really a terrible place to be, and I only know this from experience. I love what Mike says about you can't argue with experience. And, you know, the book talks about all those things, and I love Bill's story where he talks about, um, you know, the p pacing back, you know, madly, and um, the, the horror, the hopelessness and remorse of the next morning, you know. I mean, I, I, I've never, um, they say to drink is to die, but I have no experience with death. But I'll tell you, the next morning, after a good bender, you know, that, that I have down pat, you know, like I said, no friendly direction. And I, I know that that I am what Bill describes. And, and I remember um, when I lived in Denver and I was going to meetings here and there, I used to carry on a bag. I had my tools in it, my map book in it for work. And I always had a big book in there, which was kind of strange, you know, being at the crack house with the big book in my bag. But when I would get done with my little sprees, you know, and I'd run out of money, the next day I would um, I'd ride the bus home and I'd read that big book. And I used to love to read Bill's story. Because I could identify with the hopelessness and the progression of the illness, you know. Where he would talk about I me, mean, I don't know nothing about stocks or bonds. And I'm, you know, being a lawyer, I wasn't in the war, or I didn't, didn't play golf at that time. But um, 
I understood, you know, what he talked about, the progression of the illness. And I used to read up to the point where he got sober and he talked about getting catapulted and I couldn't understand anything after that. You know, that's where I, I quit relating. And I found myself, you know, in this group where we would go over the literature and we would read. We never had topic discussions. We never had topic meetings at our group, you know. Who wants to talk about what? I used to bring up things like self-pity. That would be my topic that I want to talk about, you know, whenever I would go to those goofy meetings. We would just read the literature. And I got my, um, I got my, my final sponsor and started going through the steps with him and, um, and started realizing that, um, you know, I looked back at my life and I hadn't had a drink in a while. And I hadn't been thinking about a drink every day for a while. And my life just started to get just a little bit better. And, um, you know, there was a lot of great ego deflating action going on in my group. But I was just, like I said, I was desperate enough to stay. And I started to make friends. And life started to get a little bit better, you know. And I got a job. And I kept my job. And um, and my employer, you know, I used to hate people at my work, that the guys who always did what their boss said, and they all showed up on time. Like I thought they were a bunch of butt kissers. And I started to become one of those butt kissers and realized that's not what I was at all. I was just taking directions from a sponsor. You know, who was talking about being in service at work? You know, I mean, what a deal. Trying to be in service at work and forgetting about, you know, how much you get paid or how much you don't get paid and just being in service at your job and doing the best thing, the, the best, you know, the first the next right thing at your job. And um, and my life just started to get good. And um, like I said, I got married to this lady after a while. And, um, you know, I love our group because it's about family recovery. And, you know, our family got sick together. And I put my family through eight years of pure hell, pure selfish, self-centered hell, you know. And we got very, very sick together. And, um, you know, thank God for Al-Anon. You know, we have Al-Anon in the next room at our group. And it's not like we make fun of them, you know, or, or we don't, you know, associate with them. They're right in the next room. And my wife, you know, and it's not her story, but um, at one point when I started getting sober, my wife was so miserable that she was actually talking about suicide, you know. And thank God that there was a place for her to go. Because she had told me so many times, if you would just get sober, if you would just stop doing what you're doing, I'd be okay. You know, I would say something like, whatever, if I got sober, you'd find something else to cry about. She said, no, I wouldn't. Try me. And I started getting sober, and she started getting worse. And I guess it was because she wasn't responsible for my sobriety. I don't know, but she started getting sicker and sicker. And thank God for Al-Anon, you know. And she started getting going to Al-Anon meetings. And, um, and my job was going along so well at this point that... Um, you know, I started making a lot more money, and I'm a, I have my own truck now, and um, my boss came up to me and said, you know what, Alex? He goes, you go to these meetings. I don't know why you go, because I know someone else said, yeah, you don't look like an alcoholic to me. You don't look like you have a failed disease to me. I don't see why you have to go to those meetings. They've done what they can for you. It's time to make some money. And I talked this over with my wife, and he threw out this just tremendous figure of money I could be making. And I'm like, well, hey. And I guess we'll try that. And so I, I basically left my group. And it wasn't two weeks later that those thoughts started coming back to me. And, um, you know, it wasn't about a week after that that I was drunk. And I started lying to my wife because my job is not an 8-to-5 job. My job, you know, it takes me out of town. I work late. I basically have no accountability because, you know, I'm not supposed to be home at 5.30 every day. I get home when I get home. And I would just say, oh, they stopped me at the scales tonight, honey. 
2.30 in the morning. Oh, it was a really long job. All of a sudden, I was working late every night after, you know, I was really getting loaded. I would, I would go to my, you know, I have a sleeper in the back of my truck. I would go to a truck stop, and I would just get loaded in my truck. You know, and it, it wasn't like that eight months of sobriety, which is the longest I had ever had since I was 12 years old, qualified me to drink as a normal person or even like a regular person. I mean, you would think I'd start with a few beers or something and kind of build up to that, but I went right back to that. And it wasn't about, um, you know, a couple weeks after that, we had a, we were, uh, we had a uh, couples meeting at our house. And I wouldn't go into the group. I went one time since I... Um, I was getting loaded again, and uh, I gave a fake sobriety date, my regular sobriety date, and lied, and, and it felt so bad I couldn't take it, so I just quit going altogether. And it was a Sunday, and the whole group was coming to my house, and I knew I was lying. I knew I was lying, and I just could not look in the face of my sponsor and my grand sponsor and everyone else there and say everything's okay. So I, uh, I think I called my cell phone so my wife could hear it ring, and I picked it up and talked to nothing and said, okay, I'll be right in. And I told her that I had a job to go do, and I went straight to a motel room, and I got a, you know, a big batch of, of those outside issues, and I got a, a lot of alcohol, and I sat there, and I meant to go home at um, about 10 o'clock and say the job's over, oh, honey, I'm home, how did the uh, couples meeting go? But the problem was that it wasn't done. I still had plenty of stuff left at 10 o'clock, and it lasted me till like 1 or 2 o'clock. And then as soon as I had that alcohol in my system, I had to get more. And I stayed there, and I had a job to go to actually in Dallas the next day, and I blew that off. And now I had blown off my family. I had blown off my job after I had already blown off my group, and I was there again. And it finally did run out, and that was um, on July 3rd of 2001 and I sat in that motel room and drank as furiously as I could as much as I could until it was all gone and then I sat in the bed and just wailed and just cried and just you know here I am again and um and uh I called my wife the next day and told her you know I know what I have to do and she says yeah I know what you have to do I figured she'd be yelling and screaming and you know well go find the Tulsa homeless shelter now you loser you know, you did it again, and here we are again, but she didn't because she had some place to go that night, and she had someone to talk to, my grand sponsor, about the disease of alcoholism, and his wife, Susan, picked her up to take her to an Al-Anon meeting that night, and, um, you know, and I haven't had a drink since that day, and I'll tell you one of the most important pieces of information that, that I got that next day when my grand sponsor did sit me down, eye to eye, and among other things, you know, telling me I had lost my right to drink. And he told, he told me one of the most important things I'll ever hear in my life. He said, Alex, I want you to remember what it was like in that motel room. I want you to remember crying on that bed and wailing and screaming and asking yourself, how did it happen again? Because that's as good as it's ever going to get for you. That's it. That's, that's the pinnacle now. I mean, that is as good as it's ever going to get for you. You're never going to go back to any kind of conviviality and release from boredom and worry. That is just as good as it's going to get. And I believe that. And today... I know that that's true because I visit places where, where someone was talking about the stream of death and misery, and we go to places. This week, we had a meeting Monday. We had the Salvation Army, which I went to on Tuesday night. Wednesday night, we had a meeting. Thursday night, I'm here. There's a sponsorship meeting going on. There's a Metis meeting that goes on Monday and Wednesday. Uh, the jail is tonight, so there's going to be three gentlemen there that are going to arrive late at the sponsorship meeting because they're going to be at jail just trying to reach their hand out to another suffering alcoholic. 
You know, it's a no-brainer for me now because I get to go to these places and see these things. It's easy to remember because I'm, I cannot recall with sufficient force into my memory, into my memory that, that, that suffering and humiliation of a month or even a week ago. Now, I'm without defense against the first drink because I forget and I'll start taking credit for all the wonderful things I have in my life. You know, and I remember days, you know, coming back three days later and finding my stuff on the lawn and my kids holding on to my legs as I'm walking away and they said, Daddy, why did you do it again? Why? I didn't know why. You know, I didn't know why and more importantly, I didn't know how to stop. So, you see, I have to be here tonight and, and I have to... Um, to tell my story, to remember. And, um, and those kids, you know, we have another baby girl now, a little, little girl, Danielle, and she's two years old, and she's never seen her dad drunk. You know, the other day, um, a little while ago, she, she's just starting to go potty, and, and she went on the, uh, she said, Daddy, I need to go potty. So I put her on the toilet and, and uh, you know, took off her pull-up and put her on the toilet, and then and I was shaving. So I gave her the privacy, kind of turned in the mirror, and I was shaving, and, and um and turned around, and she had fell in the toilet, you know, and, and, and I reached around, got around, and, and my point is that, you know, I was there. I was actually there to pull her out, you know. I'm, I'm accountable to my family now. I am dependable. I come home. I have a job now for the last three years, you know, and they like me. They want me to stay. Um, I'm faithful to my wife, you know. My, my kids, you know, I'm in the process of adopting those two girls. And, um, you know, I have a life today behind, beyond my wildest dreams. It's not like I even really got my life back because I never had a life until I got here. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous really works. And, I, and I'm a person who, who could not stay sober for whatever reason. I thought I was the unconstitutionally incapable of being honest, the constitutionally incapable of being honest guy. I thought, you know, I was such an unfortunate. I wasn't at fault. But yet I'm here today and I'm sober. And, you know, everything I am and everything I hope to be is a direct result of, of Alcoholics Anonymous and especially groups like this who can, who can tell a knucklehead and break the shell of a guy like me and, and crack my ego to tell me the truth. You know, I thank God that there's people in my life today. I found a group that, that were brave enough to tell me the truth, that cared enough about me to tell me the truth, like Mike was talking about, you know, Johnny's definition of love. Because without those people... I would still be drunk today, and I wouldn't have that family, and I, and I wouldn't have anything. I would just be, you know, because I don't function when I'm out there. I, I'm pretty much of a bottom-of-the-barrel guy, and if I was still alive, my life would be just a slow, painful, miserable, gray existence. And, and today it's not like that, and I just wanted to thank you for my life. The format of tonight's meeting is group participation, followed by a short coffee break, followed by our main speaker. We ask that you limit your comments to two or three minutes so we can hear from as many people as possible. We also ask, in order to avoid interrupting the meeting, to show respect to those who are sharing, you turn off all cell phones and pagers and refrain from getting coffee during the meeting. Before we begin, I'd like to thank our speaker, Alex, for coming to speak for us tonight. Yay! Let's start tonight with Danny. I'm Danny Crow, alcoholic. Hi, Danny. And I've been sober since April 24th of 94. And Alex, thank you for coming down tonight and the rain and the bad traffic and all. And uh, that is a committed action to drive down here. And um, 
Alex also is leaving at 6 in the morning tomorrow to drive to Nebraska. So um, I admire that commitment. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing you talk. And uh, thank you for coming down with him as well. Um, I had a, a good week. And uh, one of the things I did, uh, since we're switching up our Tuesday night commitments and not everyone's going to Cornell anymore, I went to the Preston group where Jerry asked me to go. And that's a place that usually I just go there and I just cringe that it just, uh, um, the place just drives me crazy. And, you know, I've been gone there before and, you know, just gotten so upset and irritated at that place that I couldn't even, you know, speak intelligibly um, when I had a chance to talk. And, uh, you know, I guess I was thinking about, you know, why that is. And, uh, and really the reason why is, you know, it, um, the stream of death and misery just runs through that place. And, um, you know, there seems to be really, at least my perception is, is that they're real heavy into, um, you know, everything's, saying everything is just a suggestion. You know, you don't really have to do anything. And, you know, half people are on medication and have shrinks for their sponsors and, um, you know, there's just a lot of sickness and, you know, a lot of, a lot of stuff that goes on, at least from my perception. And, uh, um, and uh, you know, I guess uh, a lot of that, I think, comes from a lack of taking the disease of alcoholism very seriously and not realizing that it's, a, you know, it's a progressive and fatal and terminal malady. And, uh, you know, when it's, it's taken in its proper context and treated with its proper respect for what it is, then that allows us to, you know, you know at, at times take it very seriously and, and deal with it as a deadly malady and take actions consistent with that belief. And uh, when we do that, then that allows us to have, you know, a lot of fun and, and laughter later. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful for Mike for, you know, always emphasizing that this is a program that for the, you know, the desperate and the hopeless, you know, not the people that are just um, half measures, I guess. And, um, you know, I also love the, you know, the, the book studies that we have, and we always talk about alcoholism and its hopelessness. And, you know, that's just so vitally important to uh, um, keep this thing in its proper perspective. And anyway, I'm glad to be here. Thanks. <laughs> Chris. Chris. Chris, that's a long haul. Hi, Chris. Sobriety dates, February 10, 2003. And the spot of today, through practice, through practicing steps and having a sponsor and, and talking over the seriousness of the of the defects that a person has in his alcohol and his abuse to people and the waves, the damage that we've done in the wreckage in the past. I was talking to, a, to an old-timer today that knew me when I was a kid. And out of the blue, it just came, can you, can, I asked him if there was anything that I really did to harm him in any way that really, that really bothers him and he really thinks about it today and the words were no I got sober the first time I got sober was December 8th 91 and th through my judgment and the program and the actions that I quit taking it took me to a different road and I left AA for a while I came back in February 10th and, and got a new sobriety date but whenever I was in there in 91 and all through 96 and, and through the years of sobriety, 
of cleaning up the wreckage of my past, most of it was taken care of then. I was I was raised by a mother that wasn't my mother, and the real mother I had was I, I, the last time I remember her was about eight. I was about six years old when she left, and uh, and I remember the strong resentments and the hate and the anger against her. And today I I, talk, I called her and talked to her. And to clean up the side of the street that I messed up. And to make amends for not showing up when I should have showed up after I got older. And not trying to be a part of her life. And that's all I got. Jerry. My name is Jerry Korth. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Jerry. Sober since uh, November 7th, 2000. And uh, it's good to be here on a rainy Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a little rain never stopped me from uh, getting out and getting what I needed. That's for sure. Thursday is no different from Friday to me. Uh, Thursday was always just another day to get wasted, just like Friday and Sunday and Tuesday. And it didn't really matter why. Half the time I forgot what day of the week it was before I got here, you know. Um, I've been thinking about uh, this past weekend we were at this conference and uh, Johnny, Johnny H. was the, one of the speakers and he, he tossed out there um, <clears throat> this thing about crossing the line from being a, a taker to a giver again. And for some reason, every time I hear that, I kind of cringe and kind of look around and I don't, I think I have a little... Uh, certainly have a lot of difficulty with that and uh, this week I've had to practice that to a large degree just at work because uh, well, I've had the same boss for a long time but she's been kind of moody this week and uh, I've been kind of loaded up on work and I got a lot and uh, you know a lot of pressure going on and I wake up in the morning and I'm just restless irritable and discontent you know as soon as I uh, it takes about three minutes, maybe two minutes, after I open my eyes and realize where I am before I start thinking, and I'm and I'm starting to worry, and I'm in take mode. I'm I'm in like fear mode, and uh, I gotta hurry up and start thinking about the other, you know, being the other way, and that's that's it's not natural for me, but I've had to think about giving. I'm going to work to give, you know. It's this concept of being of service that we talk about so much. And and uh, the idea that I'm going there to get, to give something rather than to get something has been able to change my perspective this week where I've been able to leave some of that fear behind and go into work and uh, and be of service to my employer, which really, really helps as far as uh, not feeling restless, irritable, and discontent. It just it just helps. It just it just works so well um, at at you know keeping my alcoholism, my alcoholic mind in check, you know. And I was talking to some normies this week and getting that same story about why do you go to all those meetings and stuff? And they will never understand. It's like Danny was saying, the the, the fatal that I have this fatal illness, you know. And even if you try and explain it, you know, I, I don't look like you have a fatal illness, you know, but. 
you know, I do. And I wake up with it every morning, and I've got to, you know, take my medicine. So that's why I'm here. Thanks. Larry? Larry McGinnis, alcoholic. Hey, Larry. June 1295. Hey, Alex, thanks for coming out. That's that is that's a long drive, especially in pouring rain, which I've done it a lot of times, and it's a uh, it's it's brutal. Um, but you know, I think I think I think people like you, the examples in my life that do things like that. You know that that um a little bit of rain's not gonna not gonna keep them away from an AA meeting, because um. This is drinking weather right here, raining and just nothing to do is sit at home and tie one on, you know, just get that, get down to it, Let's do some drinking, you know, and that's what I used to do. <laughs> if it was raining, I was drinking. If it was sunny, I was drinking. I was, I was drinking all the time, but, um, you know, and as far as I'm concerned, if it's a good day to drink, it's an even better day to go to an AA meeting, you know. It's, if I'm thinking... If I'm sitting there thinking, the, you know, remi- remembering about how this is such a great day to drink, then I just, I can't think of a better place to be than here, you know, because um, because uh, all I know is that um, at one time in my life, that um, I didn't think that there was any way that I could stop doing what I was doing, you know, I thought I was one of those people that was constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves, that um. That it didn't matter what I did, I was gonna end up getting drunk again because that's what because that's what I did, you know, time after time after time, um, and uh, well, I tell you, you know, I, by surrendering to um, the fact that I'm an, that I'm hopeless and that I can't do it and that I need some help and that um, and that, and and surrendering to it to a, a God, you know, and, and um, a sponsor. You know, and in an AA group, and some simple principles that are that we talk about in, in these books. You know, and, and taking directions. You know, shoot, had a hard time with that. <laughs> you know, still do. Um, but um, but I know if I went down the other way, you know, me and Alex were talking about that. That uh, you know, there there's a lot of groups out there, and there's a lot of different types of um, programs out there, and sobriety. And um, some people seem to be able to do it that other way. All I know is, I know I'm not one of those people. I know that for a fact because uh, I tried it for a lot of years, um, going out there and um, sitting in the back of a meeting, you know, that had 200 people in it because I knew nobody's nobody's going to talk to me. And then as soon as that meeting got done, I'd be out the door and uh, no one would ever notice me because it's a big group, you know. And, um, and I, you know, I just... Um, I'm grateful that I w- that someone pulled me in and, and asked me to get in the middle of a group and um, get involved, you know, and 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 quit hiding, you know, and, and quit trying to do it my own way, because all I know is that it didn't work for me. And um, but what we do here has worked um, when nothing else did. And 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 with that, you know, there can be no argument because that because that is my story. That's all I got. Thanks. Hey, 
Thanks, Tim. I'm Mike Erickson, alcoholic. July 19th, 87 is my sobriety date. And I'm glad to be here. And I'm not going to blow smoke up your ass, man. I've driven, you know, I've driven on nights worse than this to get back and forth to Tulsa and left later and got home later, you know. Why? Because I suffer from a disease called alcoholism, like Danny talked about and like some of you guys have also talked about. I suffer from a deadly disease that demands that I do things that normal people don't have to do. Normal people don't have to do this stuff. They don't. They get to sit home, and as my sponsor says, they get to sit home tonight on a rainy night and play Parcheesi with Buck across the street. You know, They get to make macaroni salad with Alice tonight. But not us. Not me. Not alcoholics of my type. Right? I have to go home. And I have to, you know, I have to find an excuse to leave work when I got a boss that is ramming down my throat stuff to do. I have to find an excuse to say, I, I'm sorry, I have to go because I have a commitment that I have to honor tonight. And I have to go put on a coat and tie, and I don't want to do that. I don't have a coat, but I have to go and put on a tie. I don't want to do that. But I do it because this program demands things of me because I know what I suffer from today. That's the deal. I know I suffer from a disease called alcoholism. And whether you're, I'm glad you're here from Cornell. I'm really glad you're here. Um, and whether you're living in, in a, in a state-imposed crisis or whether you're living in a self-imposed crisis, right? Which is where I can live real easy. I can create a self-imposed crisis around me inflicted by the disease of alcoholism, which is basically selfishness and self-centeredness and self-seeking and self-serving that will drive me crazy. And in the absence of you people, I will go insane. In the absence of this spiritual solution, I will go crazy. I know it. You know why? Because I've done it. Without a drink of alcohol in my body for a long time, I've gone nuts. You know, and, and uh, I went to that same weekend that Jerry went to, and, uh, and I've been listening to some of the talks that went on that way. And, you know, we talk about this idea of strong sponsorship and and. Uh, and, and what is a sponsor? Why do you need a sponsor? You know, I need a sponsor because I don't trust what goes on up in here. This thing's looking to kill me. It's looking to give me an excuse. It's looking to give me an out. It's looking for me to find an easier, softer way. It's looking for me to find a way to say, you know what? A couple drinks will make me feel better. I know they'll make me feel better. I know they will. But I also know today that if I take those drinks, I'm a dead man. And one of the things Johnny talked about that's been just rattling around in my head is this idea of love. What is love? A lot of us think this love is this huggy-huggy pat on the back, pat on the butt. Oh, I'm glad you're here. It's okay. Call me when you need me. Do what you feel like. You know, if you get in any trouble, give me a call. And Johnny said it very clear the other day that love is defined simply as this. Get in the goddamn car. Sit down. Take your seat in the meeting. Show up early. Shake somebody's hand. Do something that is outside the bounds of my own self-centered self thoughts. You know, that's my killer with this disease of alcoholism. That's my killer. Is this kind of thing up here that says you don't have to do that. You said it, you said it so great. Cross the line from being a taker to being a giver. I am a taker by nature. I take things from people. I steal their happiness. I ask my wife any period over a month what it's like living with me. You know, I'm not this jolly, happy guy all the time. I can be an idiot at the drop of a hat. You know, because I'm a taker. 
And somehow I have to be a giver. And what does it mean to be a giver? That's the thought that's really been going on in my head. What does it mean to be a giver? And really what it means is putting my ideas on the shelf. Putting my ideas on the shelf and doing some, seeing what I can do for somebody else. And for me, it's very simple today. John, they asked Johnny the question, why are you here, Johnny? He said, because I said I was going to be. That's why I'm here, because I said I was going to be here tonight. I told you I was going to be here. I'm going to be here. You know? And this idea of, I show, he talked about how 42 years sober, what he does on Monday night, every Monday night, he's there shaking people's hands. He's sitting through the meeting, taking his place as a regular AA member, not something special, just sitting there as a regular AA meeting, as an AA member. And when the meeting's over, he picks up the chairs and stacks them up. And he does that week after week after week after week, every Monday night at his home group. Thank God for an example like that. Thank God. If I had my way, I wouldn't be here. I'd be home watching football, you know, or whatever happens. I don't know what happens on Thursday nights or Monday nights for that matter. I don't know what happens because I have to sit with you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Ben. Benny! Hi, I'm Ben. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Ben. Uh, my spotty date's August 12, 2002. And um, I had a pretty uneventful week this week, um, but I did get um, kind of a bat to the head with my own selfishness last week. Um, I think I expressed to you that I, you know, was wanting a promotion and everything at work, and you know, and I bought a couple of new dress shirts, you know, to look a little bit better, thinking I was going to get it that way, and you know, and mm, no, and you know, I've 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 had good performance over the year, and um, um, I did sit down in the office with uh, my boss, and it wasn't about anything in particular. We were just doing something off, and and he kind of uh, confronted me about it, and just said, you know. They don't want to know that you want to raise. You know, it's it's it's. They want to know, and what Mike told me was they they want to know how you're going to be of service to them. And I didn't know how to express that. I was selfish in my in my uh, motives there, and um, and it was a good deal. You know, I felt really good after we had that talk. And um, you know, it's 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 been. You know, a wonderful year, the whole year. I mean, I haven't been lacking in raises over the last year um, and in promotions. You know, I've had two promotion, two or three promotions and like three raises, something like that. And, you know, that isn't typical of me, you know, a couple of years ago, you know, before I came to AA. Um, uh, they want me to do something different than what I wanted to do. They said I would be the best person for a certain job, and they want me to do that. And it's still a promotion. Um, and for anybody to tell me that I'm the best person for something good, you know, is pretty amazing. And you know, it's it's been because of y'all. You know, I I was watching the Video Music Awards a couple of weeks ago, and Missy Elliott won uh, Video of the Year or something like that. And she gets up and, and to uh, accept her award, and she has a lot of people behind her. And she thanks all these people, her stylist, her producer, her director, um, uh, just, you know, a, a ton of people. And um, because she wouldn't have made that video, and she wouldn't have gotten video of the year without all of those people. And y'all are like those people to me. Y'all help me get through life. And 
that's you know, you know, a good deal, and that's all I have. Thanks. Mitch. Mitch. I'm Mitch McCabe. I'll call it. Hi, Mitch. I've been sober since July 1st of 99. For that, I'm truly grateful. Alex, it's good to see you here. Does my heart good to see Alex here? Um, you know, uh, <laughs> today, uh, today was a really strange day. You know, I, I, the company, I had to go do something for the company at work, and and then uh, when I got back to my coworkers, well, most, their wheels had already come off, and mine started to come off, and and I called Stein, and he said. Something about going picking up uh, Mike, and uh, immediately my thought just just turned to that. I started looking forward to going and picking this Mike Mike up out at Wilmer tonight, and uh, it made my day a lot better. You know, I was really looking forward to getting here tonight and being with with people that are just like me because you know it was it was crazy at work today, and I did not feel a part of. You know, I felt like uh, I was with a bunch of normies, and you know, and I. <laughs> uh, Anyway, I'm really glad to be here with y'all tonight. Thanks. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.